0: You can be seated. This morning we'll be in 1 Kings 20, and this will be our last time in Kings until probably after the new year. Again, taking a break for our Advent series, and then when we come back, we're over halfway through the book of Kings as far as uh, messages will go. We'll have two more chapters left in 1 Kings and then we'll be into Second Kings as we drive towards the, the final point of the author's work in Kings. So we're in First Kings 20 uh, this morning. Before we read that, let's pray together. Lord, we come in humility before your word, looking not to tell it what it may or may not say to us, but desiring to hear what it says to us about ourselves, about you, and about your world. And so we pray that you would give us your truth and the grace to accept it this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Kings 20 Now Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mustered his entire army. Accompanied by thirty-two kings with their horses and chariots, he went up and besieged Samaria and attacked it. He sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, saying, This is what Ben-Hadad says, Your silver and gold are mine, and the best of your wives and children are mine. The king of Israel answered, Just as you say, My lord, the king, I and all I have are yours. The messengers came again and said, This is what Ben-Hadad says, I sent to demand your silver and gold, your wives and your children. But about this time tomorrow... I am going to send my officials to search your palace and the houses of your officials. They will seize everything you value and carry it away. The king of Israel summoned all the elders of the land and said to them, See how this man is looking for trouble? When he sent for my wives and my children, my silver and my gold, I did not refuse him. The elders and the people all answered, Don't listen to him or agree to his demands. So he replied to Ben-Hadad's messengers, Tell my lord the king, your servant will do all you demanded the first time, but this demand I cannot meet. They left and took the answer back to Ben-Hadad. Then Ben-Hadad sent another message to Ahab, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if if enough dust remains in Samaria, to give each of my men a handful. The king of Israel answered, tell him. One who puts on his armor should not boast like one who takes it off. Then Hadad heard this message while he and the kings were drinking in their tents. And he ordered his men, prepare to attack. So they prepared to attack the city. Meanwhile, a prophet came to Ahab, king of Israel, and announced, This is what the Lord says. Do you see this vast army? I will give it into your hand today, and then you will know that I am the Lord. But who will do this? asked Ahab. The prophet replied, this is what the Lord says, the young officers of the provincial commanders will do it. And who will start the battle, he asked. The prophet answered, you will. So Ahab summoned the young officers of the provincial commanders, 232 men. Then he assembled the rest of the Israelites, 7,000 in all. They set out at noon while Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings allied with him were in their tents getting drunk. The young officers of the provincial commanders went out first. Now Ben-Hadad had dispatched scouts who reported, Men are advancing from Samaria. He answered, If they have come out for peace, take them alive. If they have come out for war, take them alive. The young officers of the provincial commanders marched out of the city with the army behind them, and each one struck down his opponent. At that, the Arameans fled with the Israelites in pursuit. But Ben Hadad, king of Aram, escaped on horseback with some of his horsemen. The king of Israel advanced and overpowered the horses and chariots and inflicted heavy losses on the Aramaeans. Afterward, the prophet came to the king of Israel and said, Strengthen your position and see what must be done, because next spring the king of Aram will attack you again. Meanwhile, the officials of the king of Aram advised him, Their gods are gods of the hills. That is why they were too strong for us. But if we fight them on the plains, surely we will be stronger than they. Do this, remove all the kings from their commands and replace them with other officers. You must also raise an army like the one you lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot, so we can fight Israel on the plains. Then surely we will be stronger than they. He agreed with them and acted accordingly. The next spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Arameans and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. When the Israelites were also mustered and given provisions, they marched out to meet them. The Israelites camped opposite them like two small flocks of goats, while the Arameans covered the countryside. The man of God came up and told the king of Israel, This is what the Lord says, Because the Arameans think the Lord is a God of the hills and not a God of the valleys, I will deliver this vast army into your hands, and you will know that I am the Lord. For seven days they camped opposite each other, and on the seventh day the battle was joined. The Israelites inflicted a 100,000 casualties on the Aramean foot soldiers in one day. The rest of them escaped to the city of Aphek, where the wall collapsed on 27,000 of them, and Ben-Hadad fled to the city and hid in an upper room. His officials said to him, Look, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful. Let us go to the king of Israel with sackcloth around our waists and ropes around our heads. Perhaps he will spare your life. Wearing sackcloth around their waists and ropes around their heads, they went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please, let me live. The king answered, Is he still alive? He is my brother. The men took this as a good sign and were quick to pick up his word. Yes, your brother Ben-Hadad, they said. Go and get him, the king said. When Ben-Hadad came out, Ahab had him come up into his chariot. I will return the cities my father took from your father, Ben-Hadad offered. You may set up your own market areas in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. Ahab said, on the basis of a treaty, I will set you free. So he made a treaty with him and let him go. By the word of the Lord, one of the sons of the prophet said to his companion, strike me with your weapon. But the man refused. So the prophet said, because you have not obeyed the Lord, as soon as you leave me, a lion will kill you. And after the man went away, a lion found him and killed him. The prophet found another man and said, strike me, please. So the man struck him and wounded him. Then the prophet went and stood by the road waiting for the king. He disguised himself with his headband down over his eyes. As the king passed by, the prophet called out to him, Your servant went into the thick of the battle. And someone came to me with a captive and said, Guard this man. If he is missing, it will be your life for his life, or you must pay a talent of silver. While your servant was busy, here and there the man disappeared. That is your sentence, the king of Israel said. You have pronounced it yourself. Then the prophet quickly removed the headband from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. He said to the king, this is what the Lord says, you have set free a man I had determined should die. Therefore it is your life for his life, your people for his people. Sullen and angry, the king of Israel went to his palace in Samaria. You can imagine that Ahab felt a little bit like you can run, but you can't hide. Everywhere he went, there was someone who was after him. When he was home in his palace, he had a a pesky, belligerent, nagging wife who was always telling him what to do. And then he had this pesky prophet who followed him here and there, always telling him what he was doing wasn't right and that he should be doing something else. And now he finds himself surrounded by a foreign army in his own capital city, seemingly hopeless and about to be destroyed he is probably thinking to himself that being king isn't all that it's cracked up to be and so Ahab is here in Samaria his his capital city a a fortress and his capital city is being besieged by the army of another king that king being Ben-Hadad Ben-Hadad is king of Aram Aram is uh, synonymous with Syria and so he's being besieged by the the Syrian king. Ben-Hadad is is a throne name. It means son of Hadad, Hadad being a Syrian god. So uh, there were Ben-Hadads before this one, and there will be Ben-Hadads after this one. But Ben-Hadad and his forces, which includes the forces of 32 other kings, or sort of like tribal chieftains, are surrounding the city. And they're is virtually nothing that Ahab is going to be able to do to prevent his city from being destroyed and his life being taken. So Ahab receives this this message from Ben-Hadad. And the message essentially says, you, you will become my vassal And that's what the language here, your sons and your daughters, your wives, the best of what you have will be mine. It's not that Ben-Hadad was actually going to come and take away all the wives and all the children. It's that he was saying that you will be my servant. You, king, and your kingdom will belong to me. When I say come to war, you will come to war. When I say pay taxes, you will pay taxes. You will cease being an independent king. And you can see that Ahab agrees because he says, My Lord, the king. But then Ben hadad goes one step farther. He's not content with the terms he's set. Instead, he says, Actually, I will take your wives, and I will take your children, and I'm going to send people into your city, and they're going to take everything that they want. I'm going to pillage, I'm going to loot, I'm going to plunder, I will take whatever I want, and You will let us take it. And for this, Ahab says, this is one line too far. And so he sends back and says, I'm not going to allow that to happen. And Ben-Hadad says, I'm going to destroy you. He takes a divine oath by his gods. I will destroy you. And Ahab retorts with something that amounts to, don't count your chickens before they hatch. But in Ben-Hadad's response, if ever there were chickens who weren't hatched but were near to it, it was these chickens. These chickens had their beaks and their heads all the way out of the egg and their wings were just a little bit ready to, to flap out and knock the rest of that egg and come out. I mean, this victory is as in hand as a victory can be had without actually having it be had. And so then we see in the next portion of the of the narrative starting in verse 13 that the Lord comes to Ahab when he is in dire need when he's desperate this is exactly oftentimes where the Lord wants his people he wants his people desperate he wants them to come to the place where they have to admit that if they are going to be saved it will only be because God has saved them this is why he waits 400 years to send Moses to the Israelites in Egypt this is why he waits until the Israelites are pinned between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's great chariot army before he opens the sea and then swallows up Pharaoh's army. He waits until the situation is as dire and drastic as possible to bring victory. And so the prophet comes and he promises Ahab victory in what seems like an impossible situation. And so on the surface, you have what seems to be a battle between two kings. Like any other battle between two kings. You have Ahab on the one side. You have Ben-Hadad on the other side. They have different armies. They're about to go to war. And they're about to fight. But actually, if you look a little bit farther, a little bit deeper, you'll see that it's more than that. It is a battle between two kings. But it's not primarily a battle between Ahab and Ben-Hadad. It's primarily a battle between the Lord the king of Israel, and Ben-Hadad. Because in the first 12 verses, you'll see two times Ben-Hadad says, then Ben-Hadad said. And then you look in the next set of verses and you'll see two times the Lord says, the Lord says. It's a battle of words. Whose word is stronger? And which king has the power to follow through on his word? Which king's word will prevail? And if we have learned anything in the first 19 chapters of the book of Kings, it is that God's word always prevails and never fails. And so Ahab, who is a very impressionable man, you get the idea that Ahab is not a very strong-willed man. He's very easy to influence. When the prophet comes and tells him to do something, he'll often do it. When his wife tells him to do something, he'll often do it. And so this prophet comes to Ahab, and Ahab is very eager to hear that he's going to win. And so he asks for his marching orders. Who's going to win the battle? And the prophet says it's going to be the young commanders of the provincial armies. And this is an unlikely group. They're typically not even militarily trained and Then Ahab says, well, who will start the battle? And the Lord says, you will start the battle. And so Ahab goes out with his army. And when the scouts come back to Ben-Hadad, they find him drunk. It's much better to fight a drunk enemy than a sober enemy. And so when the scouts come back to Ben-Hadad and they find him drunk, he gives orders. He goes to just take them alive. Well, it's very difficult to take a whole army alive when they want to kill you. And so each of these 232 men goes out and sort of like David and Goliath style, goes out in one-to-one combat with somebody coming out there and all 232 of them kill their enemy. The whole army of the Syrians melts in fear and starts running away and the Israelites win, by God's grace, a great victory. The Lord's grace has not failed. The Lord's word has not failed. God's grace and God's word never fail. But why would God give grace to Ahab? Of all people, Ahab. The king who hunts and kills prophets. The king who married this wicked Sidonian princess. Who is the most wicked woman in the Bible as far as I can tell. Who introduced all kinds of of new idolatries into the land? Why would, why, would he, why would he give grace to this king who ignores his words so often? Why? why? This, this Ahab has nothing about him that he should be worthy of this treatment. But isn't that exactly what grace is? It's favor given to the unworthy. If there was something which Ahab had done to merit it, to earn it, it would no longer be grace. God by definition gives grace to those who are unworthy. Suddenly the prophet says to Ahab, Get ready for round two. You need to do whatever it takes to be ready because this, this Syrian king, Ben hadad is going to come again. And so while while Ahab is getting advice from this prophet, Ben hadad is getting advice from his men as well. And they're theologians. They give theological advice. They're like uh, generals and theologians at the same time. They say, you see, we had a problem. The Israelite gods are gods of the hills. And so if we fight them in the hills, we might lose. That's why we lost this battle that we thought we couldn't lose. But if we fight them on the plains, that's where their gods aren't nearly as strong. So we need to fight them somewhere else, and then certainly we'll be victorious. In the back of their minds, they're probably thinking, you know, chariots are a lot more effective on open ground than they are on hills. So that helps our odds as well. But you see that the the Syrian commanders are, are just like all the rest of the peoples of the ancient Near East. They believed in all kinds of gods. They would not have denied that the Israelites had gods that were real gods. They believed in all kinds of gods. They just wondered whose gods were stronger. And all their gods were limited. There were gods of hills, and there were gods of valleys. There were gods of plains, and of the skies, and of the seas. Hills of this, or gods of this region, and gods of that region. And so they thought, well, we need to find the right place where Israel's gods are the weakest, and where our gods are the strongest, and we need to fight them there. But the Lord is going to teach them a lesson, which is good for us to learn as well. Bad theology leads to bad decisions. And so in order to demonstrate that he is, in fact, not God of the hills, but God of the hills, the plains, the valleys, the skies, and the seas, that he is the omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent God, he's going to defeat the Aramean army wherever it wants to fight. So there's another battle, another victory against all odds. There's a, a huge slaughter in the initial battle, and then there's another slaughter when the walls of a city collapse and kill what is the rest of the king's army. And this puts to rest the Syrian heresy. The Syrian heresy was that God was just God of the hills. The Lord has demonstrated himself to be God of the earth. Now this has bearing for us as well today. There's a popular phrase Just for one example, there's a popular phrase in modern political speech of the Muslim world. We understand what this means, right? The Muslim world stretches from about Pakistan in the east all the way to the Atlantic coast of North Africa in the west. And when you say the Muslim world, it's countries which are predominantly filled with with Muslims and run by typically uh, religious or at least highly religious secular Islamic governments. And it's a useful term in some right, but it's in other ways very unhelpful because there is no such thing as the Muslim world. There is Christ's world. Christ is the king of all the earth, whether it be South America or the Middle East. Christ is king of all the earth. He is king of everything. And that goes for ourselves as well. That Christ is king not only of Sunday morning or the times we find ourselves in this beautiful place, but he is king of our dinner tables and of our work, and he is king of our play and of our leisure. He is even king of our sleep. He is king of our thoughts. He is king of our inclinations. He is king of our desires. As the the great Dutch theologian uh, Abraham Kuyper said, there is not one square inch of creation, and there is not one square inch of your life over which Christ does not say, mine." So the question is, what will Ahab do with God's grace? The Lord had won a great victory for Ahab. Ahab hadn't won the victory. In fact, the victory is a lot like Joshua's victory at Jericho. Against all odds, against a much stronger opponent, there's a wall that collapses. And what had the Lord commanded Joshua to do? He had said, go into the city and slaughter everybody except for Rahab and her household. And Joshua had been obedient. So now how will Ahab act under similar circumstances? Well, Ben-Hadad's men come out crawling. They've got sackcloth on. They've got ropes tied around their heads. The ropes around the heads are not just decoration. It's a sign that they're willing to Submit to whatever Ahab has to say. They're willing to become his vassal. And they're pleading for Ben Hadad's life. What a, what a role reversal. Right? Ben Hadad was going to kill Ahab and destroy his city, so there was all that was left was dust. And now he's pleading for his life with Ahab. And Ahab gives him his life. He gets some cities back. He gets some economic concessions. And he lets them live. Notice that God won the battle for Ahab. But Ahab writes the treaty, not God. He takes no interest. He takes no interest in the Lord's prophets or anything else. And you might think that this is merciful of Ahab. Ahab it's gracious. This is a mark in Ahab's favor that he is merciful, right? After all, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. But it's not merciful at all. In fact, it was rebellion. Remember the book of Kings is written against the backdrop of the book of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy 20, we read this. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. Ahab had done that. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, which Ben-Hadad hadn't, and makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. And there are all kinds of echoes here, echoes back to Achan and echoes back to Saul and echoes back. To David, but the bottom line is that Ahab disobeys. He is going to lose his kingdom, his dynasty, and his life. And he's going to lose his life in an ironic way. When the the prophet comes to Ahab to confront him with his rebellion, he comes in a disguise. He has another prophet strike him and wound him, and he bandages himself up. He looks like a soldier who's just come from the battle. And then he ends up pronouncing this judgment on Ahab. Ahab is going to die. And how does Ahab die? In two chapters, we'll come to Ahab's death. And Ahab goes into battle. And what is he? He's disguised as a soldier. He dies in precisely the same way as his death had been pronounced. So, like with all the other narratives that we come across in the scriptures, we should ask ourselves well, what's the lesson? What are we to learn here? I think there's two main lessons here. The second one, uh, longer and more profound than the first, but the, the two lessons can be summed up with two G's. Grace and gumption. Ahab received grace. He received grace after grace after grace. The Lord's word came to him again and again and again. And whether you respond to it or not, the fact that God's Word comes to you even once is grace. That it comes to you again and again and again is grace upon grace upon grace. He was the illegitimate King of an illegitimate kingdom who had married a terrible wicked woman against God's will who had hunted and killed prophets and yet God came to Him. God comes to us. We may not have hunted and killed prophets, but we are unworthy of his word and of his grace as well. But the question then remains, how are we to respond to God's grace? That God God requires us to respond to his grace, as I would say, with gumption. That grace is good but we are called to respond to that grace. It doesn't mean that we cooperate with the grace. God does not do cooperative grace. God gives grace, and we give a response to grace. And God's grace always requires a response. Always. You might say, well, you know, Pastor, what about uh, one of those situations? What about the thief on the cross? I love the story of the thief on the cross. What grace, right? Here, here hangs this, this murderer who's going to be killed justly for, for the, the crimes that he has committed. And yet on the cross, he has opportunity to confess that Jesus is in fact who he says he is. And he, he does it right as he's about to die. So what about him? I mean, he has really no opportunity to follow through on this grace, right? But no, not at all. What does he do with his final last breath? What does he do with his last words? But he tells the other thief on the other side to pipe down. And he defends the innocence of the Lord. He defends the identity of the Lord. And he says, this man is not deserving of what is happening to him. He responds to God's grace even though he only has moments left to live. God always requires grace. A response to grace. But we don't respond upon crosses and we aren't called to put enemy kings to death. So what does our response to grace look like? Our response to grace looks like repentance. That's the message that Jesus preached. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. To repent is to declare war with sin. To repent is to declare oneself to be locked in a lifelong death match with sin in which no mercy is given. On June 28th of the year 1919, the Allied powers from World War I signed a treaty with Germany that defeated power in World War I called the Treaty of Versailles. And the Treaty of Versailles was very harsh on the Germans. It required them to reduce their military to minuscule portions. It required them to pay heavy reparations to the other victorious powers. It carved off little parts of their country to give to other countries around them. It was very harsh, but the French wanted it to be even harsher. Because most of World War I was fought in France, and they had, they had borne the brunt of the war. And France wanted there to be no more Germany at all. They wanted to carve up the country into a bunch of very small countries so that Germany could never again threaten the peace of Europe and drag the world into war. But the other allied powers thought that France was being a little extreme and trying to get rich at Germany's expense. And our president included, Woodrow Wilson, said we're not going to accept that treaty. What happened 15 years later, but Hitler was führer. Of a recharged, re strengthened superpower Germany, which drug the world into war a second time. And the Second World War claimed four or five times as many lives. Ahab let a dangerous enemy live to fight again. And the Allied powers in World War I let a dangerous enemy live to fight again. Your sin is a dangerous enemy. And will you make the same mistake? The Lord Jesus tells us to deal mercilessly with our sin. And so does the Apostle Paul. Jesus says this, If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Paul says, if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That is that we are called not to give any mercy whatsoever to sin. That we are to kill it wherever it is found. There's a a popular phrase that's bandied about. It's it's half of the truth. There's a, a popular phrase that's bandied about in churches, and it is trumpeted, and it is true. And the phrase is, the church is for sinners. And we need to embrace that. We could put a banner up here that says, the church is for sinners. And we could applaud every Sunday that it's true, because that's very good news, isn't it? If the church wasn't for sinners, I'm going out the doors and never walking back in because I don't belong here. The church is for sinners. Amen, amen. But then you put another banner up there that says the church is for sinners who love the Savior and hate their sin. The church is not just for any kind of sinner. The church is for sinners who will declare sin to be their mortal, lifelong enemy and hate it and put it to death wherever they find it. And if you're not willing to embrace that, that you are to love the Savior and hate your sin, then this is of no value to you. The church is not just for sinners. The church is for sinner saints who belong to the Savior and will put sin to death In their lives, wherever it may be found, even even sins that we may find palatable. That's the mistake Ahab found himself making. Ben Hadad was a king. Ahab knew that life as a king was hard. He was probably sympathetic to other kings. And when Ben Hadad sends his messengers, what does Ahab say? Is he still alive? He is my brother. I can relate with Him. And sins of our own or others that we can relate with, we are much more willing to be tolerant of. And you see this in our own, in our own world. You see it in the scandal that rocks the Roman Catholic Church right now where a whole bunch of, of priests and clergy who have bound themselves to unbiblical oaths of lifelong chastity have have burned with passion and taken that out upon young boys or young children in the church. And what have the other ones around them done? But they've stayed silent. They've stayed silent in ways they never would have done if it was the average person on the street. But because it was someone like them, they were silent. Even to the highest rooms of power. Or perhaps we can think of educators, particularly Christian educators, in institutions of various kinds and various levels, that in the name of intellectual freedom, in the name of diversity of thought, they allow false teaching to be taught, which is detestable to God, but they tolerate it because it's taught by fellow educators, people like them. We have acceptable sins in our own life. And we are to kill even the sins we are comfortable with. Even perhaps we are most to kill the sins we are comfortable with. John Owen said it this way be killing sin, or it will be killing you. There is no truce or treaty to be made with sin. Either you are going to win, or your sin is going to win, but there is no mutual victory. And so you are to be killing sin. But what does Jesus do? But Jesus utterly, mercilessly kills sin. We read this in the next to the last, or the next to the next to the last chapter in the Scriptures in Revelation 19. Jesus defeats all of God's enemies in His. It says, The beast and the kings of the earth with their armies, that's symbolic of all the enemies of God, gathered to make war against Him who was sitting on the horse, which is Jesus and his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. Jesus takes no prisoner. He makes no treaty with the wicked. He destroys sin. But Jesus offers grace as well. He will accept your surrender. And he will enlist you in his service. But your surrender must be unconditional. You must be willing to desert your sin even those which you cherish most. And you must be willing to desert all of your sinful desires and declare sin to be your lifelong mortal enemy, which you will give no quarter wherever you find it. And then you must be willing to commit yourself unreservedly to His Lordship. Christ gives no quarter to sin. But he does give grace to sinners. And we must respond to his grace with great gumption. Don't be an Ahab. Don't receive God's grace and let it go. But be a Christian. Receive the grace of Christ. Respond to it with faith and an eager desire to fight God's enemies and to love Christ. Let's pray again. God, to look at Ahab the fool is frighteningly to look at our own sinful nature. A nature which you Have given us the power to defeat by your own crucifixion and resurrection. And we know that you have destroyed and will destroy sin, but we also know that you have been destroyed for sinners. That you were put to death so that we might live. That we, like Ben Hadad, should have been killed but instead you were killed, that we might go free and go free justly. And so we pray that we would not let our sin run free in our lives, nor in this church, but instead that we would commit ourselves to making sin our lifelong mortal enemy and killing it wherever we find it. And all the while, we might be merciful to other sinners, sharing with them the great benefits of repentance and of faith. Lord, help us to be killing our sin lest it kill us. And we give you thanks from the depths of our hearts that you are for sinners, that your church is for sinners, and that by your Holy Spirit you call us undeserving sinners, you call us by your grace to take up our own cross, to crucify the old nature, and to live. So we pray that we might obey the call and be disciples of Christ, who is King of all the earth. Amen. Amen.